seven o'clock, so Get started at seven o'clock. Our our loyal group of learners here. So good to see you all. And as we get started, we'll just open with a word of prayer, and we'll get to our topic of the evening, which is biblical interpretation—a fun, exciting topic, and uh, one that's near and dear to my heart. So, um, so let's pray, Lord. Thank you for. Uh, our opportunity again to come and study your word and even study about your word to find out uh, things we ought to know as we try to interpret what it says and what it means and how we ought to apply it. Help us to understand the material. Help me to speak it well, Lord, so it is understandable, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, to start us off, I'm going to read a little bit to you. This is one of my... so. I sometimes say, I don't know if if this is quite the right thing to say, but other than the Bible, a book that most Christians ought to read at least once is Pilgrim's Progress. It's so good. I do recommend, this this is a a copy I've been recommending and and sharing with people. I always have extra copies, and I have three copies currently in my office, so if anyone needs one, I'll just give it to you, uh, because it is a great way to help us understand the Christian life, the struggles and the, the, the things that a person goes through. Um, and some of you are probably familiar with it, but just because we're talking about interpretation, I'm going to read a section here from when Christian goes to the interpreter's house. And uh, so I'm just going to read an excerpt, but it says, He commanded his servant to light the candle, With the glow of the flame casting a yellow puddle of light around them, the interpreter led the way and told Christian to follow him. The three of them stepped into a private room. Open the door, the interpreter said to his helper. The man did as he was told. When the door opened, Christian saw upon the wall the picture of an important man wearing a very serious expression. His eyes were lifted up to heaven. The best of books, the Bible, was clenched in his hand. The law of truth was written upon his lips, and the world was behind him. A crown of gold hung above his head, and he stood like one pleading with men. Christian looked from the picture to the man of the house. What does this mean? The man answered while still looking at the picture. The man pictured here is one of a thousand who can produce children. And it's quotes here from 1 Corinthians 4.15. Labor in birth with children, then it quotes Galatians 4.19. And nurse them himself when they are born. Just as you see him and his eyes lifted toward heaven and holding the best books of books in his hand, with the law of truth written on his lips, this is to show you that his work is to know and unfold dark things to sinners. In the same way, notice how he stands pleading with men 
and how the world is cast behind him. And see the crown that which hangs over his head? These things are to show you that by despising the things in this present world and considering them less important, all for the love and devotion he has for his master's service, he is, to sh- he is sure to have glory for his reward in the next world. The interpreter looked at Christian. I have showed you this picture first because the man shown here is the only man whom the Lord of the place where you are going has authorized to be your guide. When you come across difficult situations in your journey, consider these things I have shown you. Think and ponder them so that if someone should meet you along the way and pretend to lead you along the right path, that you will recognize that in reality their way would lead to death. Then he took him by the hand and led him to a very large parlor full of dust as if it had never been swept. The interpreter called to the man and told him to sweep. The man grabbed a broom and swept, and in doing so, stirred a thick cloud of dust into the air. The dust grew so dense it almost choked Christian. The interpreter then spoke to a woman who stood nearby. Bring some water here and sprinkle the room. The woman did as she was told, and the entire room was easily swept and cleaned. Christian asked, what does this mean? The interpreter answered, this parlor is the heart of a man who is never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his sin and inward corruption which has defiled the whole man. The one who began to sweep at first is the law, but she who brought water and sprinkled it is the gospel. Now, while you saw the room filled with a great cloud of dust when first swept, the dust flew about in such a way that the room could not be cleansed and its dust almost choked you. This is to show you that the law, instead of cleansing the heart from sin, does in fact arouse it. But it gives... But it also gives it greater strength and causes sin to flourish in the soul. For even as the law uncovers sin and forbids it, it does not provide the power to subdue it. In the same way, the woman you saw sprinkled the room with water, which made it easy to clean, this is to show you that when the gospel comes with its sweet and precious influences and indwells the heart, just like the dust settled by sprinkling the floor with water, sin is also vanquished and subdued and and the soul made clean through faith. Consequently, the soul becomes a suitable place for the king of glory to inhabit. So that's just a little part from Pilgrim's Progress. Christian visits the interpreter's house. Now, I would argue that the whole book of the Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan, is in fact kind of an interpretive work to help people understand Scripture. Um, And so as we get started on our topic for this evening, interpretation... I thought that was maybe a good way for us to start. So a lot of what I'm going to present tonight is from uh, a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Sorry, let me say it again. (laughs) How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Can't get my words out tonight. (laughs) Need a nap. Um, But it's a great book. I've actually taught it at least two or three times as a Bible study. And what it does is it, it's a way for people to learn how to study the Bible in a methodical way that, that you can take and find out what Scripture's meaning is. So because I find that book so good, I'm going to use a lot of the material from there basically to give you like a, a flyover of that book. And you'll see in your last question, we'll see if the response is that someone might be interested in me teaching that here. I, I may consider it. Um, in the course of what we're going through here. 
So from How to Read the Bible for All Its work, Worth, uh, one of the first things that it talks about is that we're all interpreters. We all interpret everything. We interpret conversations we've had, right? We, we try to figure out what's going on here. We read between the lines. We watch the body language. When we read something, um, we are interpreting what that, we think that person is trying to get across. I have a good rule of thumb, for example, if you have a serious conversation to have with someone, probably not best to do it over text, right? Because you can't really interpret always what was being said. You need to see that face sometimes, um, and that's, so that's a better way to do it. So the first reason that one needs to learn how to interpret uh, is that whether you like it or not, every reader is at the same time an interpreter. That is, most of us assume that we read, as we read, that we're assuming that we understand what we read, right? It also, we tend to think that our understanding is the same thing uh, is the, as the Holy Spirit's or human author's intent. Let me say that again. We tend to think that what we're reading and the way we understand it must be from the Holy Spirit. It must be the writer's intent. But that may not be the case. We invariably bring to the text all that we are uh, with all of our experiences, our culture, and prior understanding of words and ideas. And sometimes what we bring to the text, even if it's unintentional, leads us astray. Or it causes us to read all kinds of foreign ideas into the text that wasn't really there. So we're all interpreters. Anything we read, anything we hear, we interpret. So I mentioned texts, and I will use it as a rhetorical question, and you can answer in your own mind, but why are texts a bad way to communicate serious issues? You probably might have experience of knowing exactly why, because probably all of us at times have either sent an email that was misconstrued, or a letter, or a text, or a tweet, or a Facebook post, and all of a sudden people are like, what? Well, that's not what I meant, you know? So it's a dangerous thing. We are all interpreting Sometimes for the good and sometimes for the not so good. So that's the first main point. The next point is that the Bible is relevant to all people. The Bible is relevant to all people. Because the Bible is God's word, it has eternal relevance. It means across all ages, it's, it's relevant. It speaks to all humankind, every age, every culture. Because it is God's word, we must listen and obey. But because God chose to speak his word through human words in history, every book in the Bible also has a historical particularity. Each document is conditioned by the language, time, and culture it was originally written in. And in some cases also by oral history before it was written down. Some of the Old Testament was an oral tradition and then written down later. So... Uh, all of that in, involves interpretation. Interpretation of the Bible is demanded by the tension that exists between its eternal relevance and its historical particularity. And if you ever go through that book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, it gives numerous examples from Scripture itself of why we need to pay attention to the historical context, the cultural context, all those things. So the question is not if the Bible is relevant. The question is how can we understand it, its relevance in our case. 
and how can we help others to understand how it's relevant for them as well. All right. Um, next, we have a big word here, not a big word, but a foreign word maybe to some of us, and that is the word exegesis. But the man who walked in the back door, I guarantee you, he knows what it means. So, right? <laughs> so the first task of the interpreter is called exegesis, and I think it's on the screen, so I'm not going to spell it out loud for you. Uh, exegesis is the careful, systematic study of the scripture to discover the original intended meaning. Okay? It's the systematic study of Scripture to discover the original intended meaning. So this is basically a historical task. It's an attempt to hear the word as the original recipients were to have heard of it, or were to, would have heard of it, um, and to find out what was the original intents of the, intent of the words of the Bible. So this is a task that often calls for the help of an expert, right? Because we don't know everything about all the historical context. We could all study for our whole lives, and you might not understand all of the historical context of every part of Scripture because it covers such a broad history. Um, So we need sometimes experts. That might be someone trained to know the languages or the circumstance of a text in its original settings. But one does not have to be an expert to do good exegesis, okay? So we can, we can all do it. To some extent, we can all do it. In fact, everyone in a, in a, is an exegete. That's the person who does exegesis. <laughs> they, we're all an exegete of sorts, okay? The only real question is whether he'll be a good one. And how many times, for example, have you been in a class or heard a sermon, uh, or just in a little Bible study or something, and someone will say, well, what Jesus meant by that was that person who says that is being an exegete. They're, they're assuming something was meant based on something else they know, or they think they know, <laughs> okay? So, or they'll say, well, back in those days, they used to whatever else they say after that. So those are exegetical expressions. And most often they're employed to explain the differences between them and us. Why do we not build parapets around our houses, for example? Or to give a reason for our using a text in a new or different way. Why handshaking has taken the place of a holy kiss. Some of us say hallelujah, right? (laughs) Because some of us are maybe not as comfortable with kissing everybody. Depends on your cultural context. So even when ideas are not articulated, they're in fact practiced all the time in a kind of common sense way. Okay, So you are always probably doing that, whether you realize or not, to some extent. And not just with the Bible, by the way. You're doing that if you read uh, historical things like um, Dickens or Bunyan, which I just read, Pilgrim's Progress. Um, And you'll be glad I wrote it or read it in a modern English and not the original way it was written in, I think, 1605. And I've read that, and I had to use the Barnes & Noble version where all down the side, it got, it's got all these definitions because there's English words that are so uh, foreign that you can't understand them. And so we all are doing that in a sense. Um, some, if you don't know already, one of my favorite authors is Charles Dickens. I love reading Dickens. But if you don't understand a little bit 
about England in the time of Dickens, then you'll read his books and you'll say, okay, that's interesting. What an interesting example might be that that, uh, if you go to England and say, they just mean that someone was knocking on the door. Okay, we we mean something different, right? And uh, there's, there's hundreds of examples we could do with that, right? I remember when I took the uh, uh, hermeneutics course, which, by the way, this is, this is your textbook, by the way. If you, wanna, uh, if you don't want to do how the, to read the Bible for all it's worth, you can do the full text version of, of taking a course like this. Um, but how to read the Bible for all it's worth is much simpler and, and kind of concise version of this. But at any rate, one of the examples that was given by my professor was the word gay. Where did that word come from? Well, originally it meant brightly colored. And then it came to mean cheerful. And now it means something quite different, right? So we have to have a historical context that helps us to see uh, what's happening, where those words have come. And there's, a, there's even the study of where words come from called etymology. That even can come into play as well. All right, so historical context is important. It simply makes a difference. This is, again, from the book, in understanding how to know the personal background of Amos, Hosea, or Isaiah, or that Haggai prophesied after the exile, or to know that the messianic expectations of Israel when John the Baptist and Jesus appeared on the scene, or to understand the differences between the cities of Corinth and Philippi and how those differences affected the churches in each one. Uh, one's reading of Jesus' parables is greatly enhanced by knowing something about the customs of Jesus' day. And surely it makes a difference in understanding to know that the denarius offered to workers in Matthew 20 was the equivalent of a full day's wage. Even matters of topography, that's elevations, are important, Right? So those who were raised in the American West or the East even must be careful not to think of the mountains that surround Jerusalem from Psalm 125 in terms of their own experience of mountains. They're not the same. It's not the Rocky Mountains or even the Appalachians. What's called a mountain around Jerusalem is what we maybe would call hills. You know, Although compared to Florida, they would be pretty high elevation unless you go to the Park Ridge Golf Course where you're way up there. <laughs> so anyway... Um, so historical context and then uh, occasion and purpose is another factor of that. That's kind of a subset of historical context. Um, and that has to do with the, the occasion and purpose of each biblical book um, is that you want to have an idea, for example, what was going on in Israel or the church that called forth such a document, okay? Okay. Or what the situation of the author was that caused him to speak or write. So when Paul writes a rebuke to a church, for example, what, what caused him to write that? There was something behind it. Or maybe an encouragement being given to someone who is struggling. So those help us. And that gonna, that's going to vary from book to book. Um, and the answer to that question is usually to be found within the book itself, right? So usually that's where you're going to find it. But you need to learn to read with your eyes open for such matters like that. If you want to corroborate your own findings on those questions, you might use a Bible dictionary or something like that, or the introduction to a good commentary on the book. Um, but before you do all that, make your own observations. This is one thing. I heard a rumor 
that from the ladies' Bible study, they read uh, Scripture even without the, the chapters, right? The chapters and verses, or without the, the no commentaries and no footnotes, right? So you get your own impression first, and that's a good first step to look at a passage. All right. So then there's also literary context. What does that mean? Well, this is what most people mean when they talk about reading something in its context. Uh, and this is part of the crucial task we have. Fortunately, it's something you can learn to do well without necessarily having to consult the experts. Um, essentially, literary context means, first, that words only have meanings in sentences, and second, that biblical sentences, for the most part, only have clear meaning in relation to the preceding and succeeding sentences. Does that make sense? So if I said the word couch outside of any sentence, you have no idea what I'm really referring to. Am I talking about I'm couching my bet, sort of? I'm hedging my bet? Or am I talking about a couch that's sitting in my living room? But if I put it in a sentence, now you can understand. And even if I said the couch got stained... You don't know what that really means unless I, I give you a couple sentences on either side of it. You know, if I said the cat got sick, the couch got stained, now you know what happened. Now, that didn't happen, thank goodness. So far, they always get sick on the floor, but I'm expecting someday it'll happen. But anyway, that's the context that helps us to understand. You can actually train yourself to do that, and you should. Not just with the Bible, but even like newspaper articles. One of the things that's uh, part of the problem, I think, in our world now is that they've figured out that if they just have you read the headlines, they can get you all energized about something. And then you often, if you read the article itself, you find out the headline should have been a byline. You know, it wasn't even the main thing. And you find out like eight paragraphs down, well, what was that headline up there for? It has nothing to do with the main point of the story. But if they can get you to a lot of these websites that are... Uh, accumulations of different news stories, they, they put the headlines up there. To, wow, oh my goodness. And you draw a conclusion from that. You need to know what the context is. But you can train yourself to do that. The most important contextual question you will ever ask, and it must be asked over and over of every sentence and every paragraph, is what's the point? What's the point? And we must try to trace the author's train of thought. What is the author saying? And why does he or she say it right here? Having made that point, what is he or she saying next and why? Okay. So uh, now we talk about content. So this is another ma major category of questions you need to ask of any text as it relates to the author's actual content. Content has to do with the meanings of words, the grammatical relationships in the sentences. So if you didn't do very good in English of diagramming all those sentences or, or naming what's the verb and what's the noun and all that, you may need to brush that up because that'll even help your Bible study. Because you need to look at a sentence and say, who's talking about what? What does you mean? I pointed out this morning, in fact, in the sermon, who is you? It's the servant in, in verse 1. You've got to go back to verse 1 to find out who you is in verse 7, you know, and that's sometimes how we got to go do a little work there. And so we have to look at those things. We need to see um, 
what, what was the choice of wording that the uh, author has used. Um, and it also includes a number of other items uh, mentioned, even and they also kind of overlap with historical context. Like I said, the meaning of a denarius, a Sabbath day journey. What's a Sabbath day journey? It might be helpful to know that. What are the high places? What, what is that? If you just read the Bible without having any clue, you just say, well, a high place is different than a low place, and you, you, know, you might not know much more than that. So, um, Finally, uh, there's a word, hermeneutics, which scares a lot of people, and this is my textbook for my hermeneutics class. It just simply means a system of studying the Bible. And it's good for us to learn that. Basically, uh, hermeneutics is a Greek word that means interpretation. How do we interpret what Scripture does? And that's all of our job, not just the pastor. I have a job to make sure we're all hopefully interpreting it right in, in our group context. But in your own studies, you can be learning to do that as well. And uh, so the word hermeneutics really covers a whole field of interpretation, including exegesis. And it also is used in the narrower sense of seeking the contemporary relevance of ancient texts. So, so that's really, this is a more brief class. I actually debated whether I'd combine this with the canon one, but I didn't feel like I could pull it off, <laughs> at least not giving justice to the canon, which I know that uh, Leslie's just excited to get to that class, so I didn't want to like give it not enough justice. So we'll do that. It'll be two weeks from today because next week we have our um, carols and campfire. Or campfire and carols. I, I don't remember. It was one or the other. Anyway, um, so we'll meet the week after, and that'll be our last class for this series, and then uh, we'll get to the next series after the new year. But So in a nutshell, that's the interpretation. I've got some questions that I think will give us plenty of time in our smaller groups to talk about. Um, and uh, I, some of you will be in Brian's group. He's really sharp on this stuff. I've, that's what I've heard. So he's gonna, he'll have some good input on that. So whoever's in his group, and I'll try to be in the other group maybe, and we'll be uh, fours and fives or fives. Looks like fives and fives. So um, with that, we'll we'll do the group uh, discussion, and then I'll come back. And if there's any other questions that are that come from that, I'll, I'll come back and kind of wrap us up at the end. So, so you, do you all have your group questions? Okay. All right. Well, let's do that then. And Brandon, if you could click that off, then it'll stop recording me. Thank you.